ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers. We're going to look at a number of different passages today. Um, We'll start in Numbers 13. I'll be reading through a a portion of verses. Um, We are trying to work through a span of Scripture of 850 chapters between the book of Genesis and Daniel. Um, This is our sixth week doing this together. We have spent five weeks previously. We have seen God in creation, in the fall of man, through the flood, the Tower of Babel, and then we have seen the selection of Abraham as the one from whom the promised man of Genesis 3 will come. We've then followed the family of Abraham through his offspring, Isaac, and then Jacob, uh, to Jacob's 12 sons, which become the tribes of Israel. We have seen them take their journey down into Egypt to survive famine, and after dwelling there for 400 years and experiencing intense oppression towards the end of those 400 years, we have seen their exodus out of Egypt. At every step of the way, we have seen a very consistent picture. We have seen a faithful, loving, true, and we have seen a very consistent picture of people. Not so faithful, not so loving, and not so true. Um, In the Exodus, uh, Israel uh, meets their God in earnest for the first time. Um, They are very shortly out of Egypt, having seen everything that God has done to the Egyptians in utterly destroying the prominent empire of its day. Having seen the execution of God's judgment on the gods of Egypt and the various plagues, If you'd like a refresher of that, you can go to our church's website, which is fbcnp.com, First Baptist Church, New Paris, fbcnp.com. You can see in some slides that I put up there this week about the various gods of Egypt, how they pertain to the various plagues that God inflicted upon the Egyptians. Having seen all of that, Israel encounters God in the wilderness in earnest for the first time. And as they approach the mountain of God and they see the display that God is putting on and they hear the voice of God thundering down the commands that we have come to refer to as the Ten Commandments, they are afraid. And they tell Moses, you draw near to God, but we will stay far away. And you will tell us what God says, because if we, you're not supposed to be afraid for your life, uh, we will die. And uh, Moses tells them, You're not supposed to be afraid for your life right now, but God is teaching you to be afraid of Him. God is teaching you a proper reverence and respect for Him because Israel had spent 400 years in Egypt with the God of the Egyptians, all the various gods of Egypt. And, And they had seen the worship of these gods and they knew what it was like to worship dead gods. They knew all about the pagan festivals and the pagan deities and the they knew all about the sexual immorality of it. They they'd practiced these things. They'd participated in these things. But they had not come face to face with the living God. And on the mountain of God, they encountered a living God and they're terrified. This is not like a statue. This is not like a sphinx. This is not like something at a pyramid. This is, this is something entirely different. And... Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets the commands of God. And he, when, by the time he comes down from the mountain, they have already crafted a golden calf to worship for themselves because that's what they did in Egypt. 
Moses up on that mountain for 40 days. That's a long time for someone to be up on a mountain and wondering, is he ever coming back? So they did what they did. They reverted to what they did in Egypt and, and they engaged in all the sexual immorality of Egypt. And it's alluded to in the text when it said, and the people rose up to play. And God says, Moses, you better go down and get down among the people from this mountain right now because of what they're doing down there. And he comes down and, 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 and the, the first experience with Israel's unfaithfulness right there, after having said, we will do all that the Lord commands in Exodus 24. We will do all that the Lord commands. The 70 elders go partially up on the mountain and they, they have fellowship with God. We will keep our end of the deal, God. You keep your end of the deal. You say you're going to give us a, a land, a promise. You're going to take care of all our enemies. You're going to take care of our health. You're going to make us wealthy and you're going to be with us and everything is going to be like paradise on earth for us. That is such a great promise. We promise to do everything that you have given us in these four chapters of your law from Exodus 20 to 24. And 40 days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. God doesn't destroy them all. Instead, we see all throughout the wilderness journey the unfaithfulness of Israel contrasted with the faithfulness of God, which, by the way, that is the only way we can have fellowship with God, is if it depends on His faithfulness and not ours. If my relationship with God depends on my ability to keep all of God's rules, I can't keep fellowship with God. And that is on display for us in the law of God. It is God's faithfulness and not ours. Um, they get all the way. Now it takes them about two years, nearly two years to get all the way to the edge of the promised land. And they go through all these things. Now, we covered a bunch of them last week. If you weren't here, we, we covered some of their wandering fiascos. And, and they are going through the desert, the wilderness, for nearly two years. And they get to the edge of the Jordan River, which is separating the wilderness from the land that God has promised. And they get to the edge of it, and um, they're ready to go in. Okay, we were promised a land, and now we're here. Our time in the wilderness is over. And then in Numbers 13, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. If you have ever read the story about the 12 spies going into the promised land and wondered, this was a dumb idea. Why did they send in any spies? Because God told them to. The spies were God's idea. They're supposed to send one spy representing each tribe. The spies they choose are supposed to be leaders. So whatever they come back and they tell the tribe that they're a leader of, God knows those people are going to listen to him. Like, they're the leaders. God is saying, okay, here you're on the edge of the promised land. Does God need them to go spy out and find out what's going on in there? No. But it's putting Israel to the test. God knows what's on the other side of the river. What he's finding out from them, what he's showing them, is how little they trust him. He's testing them. You guys go look at the land and go look at the place and you guys go peek at it for yourself. And they go over, they go across. 
12 spies. They come back, and there's the whole story of them escaping and coming back and forth, and, and, uh, and they bring back this uh, cluster of, of fruit to say, hey, it's not like the desert. <laughs> it's, it's a land of, of produce. It's productive. It's, it's good. And they see the walls of the cities of the people there and the sophistication of their weaponry. They see the armies and the um, arrangement of the people themselves. These are not like the nomadic Edomites who were harassing them in the wilderness. These are established, fortified cities of civilized people. And that's not Israel at this point. <laughs> They've got no, <laughs> they're not very civilized. You know, they're not all armed to the teeth, okay? They're not, they don't have like great military prowess. That's not them. And they are wandering around like desert people spying this out. And honestly, 10 of the spies say, we are not up to this. Uh, we are not up to this. I mean, they've got, they've got these walled off cities with weaponry and armament and siege equipment. And uh, we, there's no way. That's what they're saying. This is not, this, you guys who have been wandering around in the desert do not understand when they come back. This is not, you see it, uh, look down at verse 31 of Numbers 13. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. For, for all of us, that would merely be a statement of fact. It says, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. They know we can't do this. And so they give them, uh, it, it, almost in this verse, a negative report of the land itself, which is false. A, a, a land which devours its inhabitants, no. But this is how convinced they are, how persuaded they are to deter uh, Israel from marching across. Um, Numbers 14, we get the reaction of the people. Numbers 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. It's two years out of slavery. Two years wandering through the wilderness. Two years of encountering the Almighty God. Let's just go back. Verse 5 of Numbers 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. They're like, go to the ground pleading. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. It doesn't devour its inhabitants. Two of the spies, in contrast to the other ten, say, This is good. It's good land. It's really good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey, which is the symbolism for all the prosperity they could want. 
only, this is Joshua and Caleb speaking, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor, and I've, I've bolded this, I've highlighted, I've underlined it, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. We will eat them up. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Um, for the next two weeks, this week and next week, we are going to see very clearly the contrast between fear and faith in serving God. Fear and faith. Ten of these spies came back terrified. Two came back believing God. That is applicable to your life. That is applicable to your life. Do not fear. Do not fear. Believe. The people react in verse 10. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the meeting before all the children of Israel. God shows up in a display of light to keep Joshua and Caleb from being stoned. Go down to verse 30. This is the Lord's judgment on the people for refusing to do this and for being so adamant in their refusal that they're ready to stone the only two faithful people. Probably four. They were probably going to stone Moses and Aaron too because they'd said, let's find new leaders and go back to Egypt. Here's God's judgment. Verse 30 of Numbers 14. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. You are not going in, except for these two guys, the two that you're ready to stone. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in. Can you imagine? You've got to look at this from God's perspective. We can see it from the people's perspective just fine. We're going to go in here with whatever implements of war we've got, which is very little, some nomadic people with no military training, no conquest, never conquered a city in our lives. We're going, to, we're going to go in here and we're going to throw out one by one fortified city after fortified city after fortified city. I don't think so. And, and this is what the other ten are saying. Let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to go in there. We're going to throw ourselves against the wall. We're all going to be destroyed at the very first city we come across, which is Jericho. And then all of our women are going to be taken and all of our children are going to be killed. We have to go back. They were very passionately and persuasively making that argument. We have to go back. But can you imagine this from God's perspective? After having saved them from Egypt and saved them in the wilderness over and over again and provided them, their accusation is God is going to let all of our children die. All of the kids are going to die. That's the fear. That's their fear-mongering. That's what they're terrified of. And in God's judgment, he says, no, all of you are going, all of you adults are going to pay the price for this. You're all going to die. And the people who are going to go have victory over the walled city of Jericho and the walled cities of the people there are your kids who you thought I was going to kill. Your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have despised. 
But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. This is where we get the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It took them less than two years to get to the promised land, but their judgment was 38 more outside. The people hear this judgment, by the way, and they're very alarmed. And know what, you know what they say? We won't read it this morning. They say, oh, we're so sorry. We'll go fight them now. And they say, don't do that. God's judgment has already been issued. We don't want to wander here for 38 more years. We'll go in and fight them now. They don't listen. They go in to fight anyway, and they get run out. They get, they get killed and run out. This theme of believing in God versus not believing in God is not a New Testament thing. When we call someone to have faith in Jesus Christ, we don't mean just believe that the man existed. We are saying to believe that Jesus is the messianic man promised by God and that by Jesus, God will deliver you. Just as God delivered the Israelites at the, at, you know, at the hand of the Egyptians. Just like God delivered Abraham at the, at the hand of Egyptians. Just like God delivered David from the hand of the Philistines. God is a God who saves. Yahweh saves. God saves. When we say in order to be a Christian you have to believe in Jesus, what we mean is you have to believe that God has saved in Jesus Christ. It's a trusting of Jesus for salvation. It's not just believing in a historical man or believing in a historical event. It's believing in the salvation of God. This is a theme from the first chapter of the Bible to the end. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world because Adam and Eve do not believe God. They believe a lie about God. They believe a deception about God. If you do this thing, you will be like God. That's the temptation. And Eve sees it and she says, she saw that it was good for wisdom and understanding and so she did it. God had said it was bad. She believed it was good. All throughout this, We're told in Genesis 15, why is Abraham righteous? It says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's quoted in Romans 4 in the New Testament thousands of years later. For if Abraham's Romans 4, 2, and 3, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to brag about. If Abraham was righteous, if he was justified because of good things that he had done, then he has something to brag about before God. That's what they're saying. But he wasn't. For the scriptures say, this is Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was not a righteous man. Abraham was credited righteousness because he believed God. Abraham was a sinner, just like you, just like me. But he was a sinner who believed in the salvation of God. And so it was credited to him for righteousness. In Habakkuk 2.4, which is a, a post-kingdom prophet, which we, you know, we'll see after, after the, the kingdoms of, of, of Saul, David, and Solomon, there's a period of the prophets uh, in the kingdoms, the divided kingdoms that come, and the prophet Habakkuk is writing about the judgment of God that's going to come out on the northern kingdom, and he doesn't understand. He's saying, God, why are you allowing your enemies to have victory over your people? And God is going to explain part of it to Habakkuk, but in the middle of explaining it, he tells Habakkuk, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. You don't understand this, Habakkuk, but if you want to be justified before God, if you want to be righteous in my eyes, then you will live by faith, regardless of whether or not you understand it. That too is quoted in the book of Romans. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says boldly, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who does good works. That's not what it says. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew and also the Greek, for in it, in believing the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, and he quotes the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. This whole concept of whether or not you live by faith or whether or not you serve other gods and other things, even yourself, this is not a New Testament principle. This is an entire world principle. Do you believe God enough to live for God? Because if you don't believe God enough to live for God, then it's just faith without works and it's dead. That's James in the New Testament. You say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Do you live for Jesus? Do you live by faith? If you don't, that's a dead faith. That's an intellectual belief that doesn't save anybody. There's no life in that. Galatians 3.11 No one is justified by the law in the sight of God, but the just shall live by faith. Now, they spend 38 years wandering in the wilderness before Joshua and Caleb lead them in. And we went over last week at the end of the wilderness period the promise that there would arise a prophet like Moses and the fulfillment of that in Christ. We went over Joshua's encounter when it's finally time to go into the promised land. And they come to this first, and they know it with this new generation of people, all 40 years or younger, and they, they come, they, they know what they have to do, but there's still Jericho standing there with the wall and the people and the armies. And as Joshua crosses over and he, he's out in the night, he sees the commander of the Lord's army telling him, take off your sandals for your standing on holy ground. And it's, I'm going to lead out in this, Joshua, not you. You're going to do what I tell you to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer Jericho, not you. And we read, if you want to turn to Joshua chapter 11, we're going to skip way ahead. They go through this conquest. We know some of these stories pretty well. Uh, Jericho is one of them because uh, it's the first major one. Some of these you probably don't know so well. Uh, you, I'd encourage you to read through the book of Joshua. It's, uh, it's not a hard read. It's not, it's not a challenging read. It's not going to be deep theological things that you can't understand. It's very com- very simple reading, the narrative is. But in Joshua chapter 11, we read this summary in verse 23. Joshua 11:23 it says so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes then the land rested from war and you think okay that's pretty cool it says right there Joshua 11:23 so Joshua took the whole land all right let's raise the banner mission accomplished Turn to Joshua 13. Look at the first two verses. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years. (laughs) Uh, You ever feel that? I feel that every once in a while. I'm sure some of you feel that too. It's nice of the Lord to make it official for Joshua. You are old, advanced in years. 
and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains, and he's going to list it all for Joshua, and he starts with all the territory of the Philistines, dot, dot, dot. You can read the rest if you want. So what's going on here? I mean, in Joshua 11, it says, so Joshua took the whole land. Joshua 13, he's getting ready to die. There remains a lot of the land yet to be inhabited. Well, here's what happened. Israel, through the conquest of Joshua, had dominance over the whole land. They ruled the whole land. But they hadn't, at the end of Joshua's life, driven out all the inhabitants of the land or dwelt in all the cities of the land. There was still work to be done. They had dominance over the land, but they didn't... And what do you mean? Well, it says he, they ruled over the whole land. What do you mean about that? Well, it tells us in Joshua 24. If you want to turn ahead to Joshua 24, you can look at verse 14. It's just 10 verses. It explains it. The exact scenario here. Sorry, let's skip ahead. Go to Judges chapter 1. We'll come back to Joshua. Judges chapter 1, which is the book after Joshua. Look at verse 27. Now they rule the land. They have the authority in the land. But here's the explanation of their rule. Verse 27 of Judges 1. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. They were putting up a big fight. And it came to pass, when Israel was strong, that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. When you put a foreign city under tribute, what that means is you tax them, you make them pay a fee, an annual tax, an annual fee, and they live as a subservient city to your rule, to your conquest. That's what it means. So they didn't drive them out, they just said, okay, we've subdued you, you're going to pay us money every year, and you can stay in, you can stay in the land. All right? Well, that's not good, because that's not what God said. Let's think about that in a minute. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim, here's another tribe. We have Manasseh, now here's Ephraim. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwell in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwell in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun, here's another tribe, drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. They're making money off of the conquest rather than obedience. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or Aphek or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali, that's another tribe, drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth. But they dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anon were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Israel of Dan, forced the children of Dan into the mountains. Dan's another tribe, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell. They, the Amorites didn't want to leave. <laughs> they were determined to dwell in Mount Horus and Ajalon and Shalbim. You say, well, that's not Dan's fault if they were forced out. Yet, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Notice when they enough, enough. What are they doing? They're just taxing. We don't want to fight anymore. Enough, enough, enough. We've won. Raise the banner. We don't want to fight. Just pay us money. 
What could go wrong? Why? It's difficult. It's difficult for us. I'm tempted to say impossible. It's difficult for us to truly understand what this world was like, what these civilizations were like. Um, I'm not making a movie recommendation here, okay? <laughs> uh, when I was very young and stupid, and uh, my wife uh, had the wisdom to say, I'm not going to go see the movie Apocalypto with you. Now, if you don't know the movie Apocalypto, please don't watch it. What I'm going to say is summary enough, okay? Um, so my brother and I went to see this movie Apocalypto, and his poor wife came along with no idea what she was in for. And <laughs> it was clear in about 10 minutes into this movie exactly what we had signed up for, which is not, you know, sexual deviancy and the nonsense, but more violence than I have seen in any war movie in my entire life, over and over again, and just. And this violence was an attempt to be authentic to the historical theme, and it was, it was just flat-out evil, satanic. And I should have just got up and left, but young, stupid, and not as strong a believer, I did not. And we stayed through that whole thing. We have no concept, and this is not coming from a movie, but we have no... that The world of ancient paganism is not familiar to us. We are 2,000 years under the influence of Judeo-Christian values. 2,000 years under the influence of all men are created equal under God. All men are created in the image of God. The world of pagan idol worship is not familiar to us. Now, there's plenty wrong in our world. The instincts to sin and do evil are still plenty present in our world. We do not understand the world that the Israelites were coming out of in Egypt or conquering um, we don't understand it at all. I wish that we had a better intellectual understanding um, while at the same time praising God that we do not have an experiential understanding. Um, there was a study of um, historians uh, in conjunction with archaeologists who looked at, uh, I think it was like 90 ancient civilizations across the globe, not localized to any one area, and they found um, undeniable evidence of human and child sacrifice in 43 of the 90 civilizations, which isn't to say the other 50 it didn't exist, just didn't find it. Um, there was human and child sacrifice, temple prostitution, which often fed human and child sacrifice in the ancient civilizations of South America, Central America. There's human sacrifice through the Native Americans of North America and the indigenous people of, of uh, what's now Canada and Alaska human and child sacrifice all throughout Europe. Uh, some of it popularized in modern day portrayals of what ancient Britain and, and ancient uh, Europe were like. Um, all throughout Europe, all throughout uh, Africa. In fact, today, uh, child sacrifice in Africa is still a thing where wealthy and prominent people sacrifice uh, to witch doctors, babies. That, that's in Uganda today, in Africa today. There's human and child sacrifice in ancient China going back at least 2,500 years that they have evidence of and all throughout Euro-Asia. We have no idea what living under these gods was like. No idea. It is darker spiritually than anything you and I could imagine. 
the Romans attacked the reputation of the Carthaginians, get the syllables right there, by um, attacking them for infant sacrifice to their gods. Um, but the Romans weren't attacking them because they believed it was wrong to kill children. Their own Roman philosophers and Stoics, including men that you would recognize like Cicero and Aristotle, were advocating for the murder of children up to three years if they showed any kind of deformity or problem. And at various times in the Roman Empire, children and human beings were sacrificed just to the Roman gods, not to the Carthaginian gods. We have no idea. Well, I read to you earlier from Leviticus uh, at the beginning of the service about God's command to his people to love the stranger in their land and to love those who were blind and deaf, not the Roman or the other society. No, you kill the babies who are blind and deaf and deformed and crippled, but to love them and to not put a stumbling block in front of them and to care for them. Loving your enemies and all of those righteous commands from Leviticus that we read, do you know what the chapter before is commanding them not to do? Not to offer their babies to the fire of Moloch. Why is God commanding the children of Israel that? Because that's the context in which they lived. Jeremiah the prophet, hundreds of years later, because of the idolatry of Israel and the kingdom of Israel, is condemning Israel because they are offering their children to Moloch. You can do your own deep dive on Moloch. He has many manifestations, but the God of child and human sacrifice. It's not a biblical thing. That's a historical thing. You could look at the archaeology for yourselves. One where they found the Carthaginians worshiping their version of Moloch, which I believe is Topheth, and they uncovered the temple where they found remnants and bones of 43 babies just in one location. You and I can't relate to that. The instinct in our culture to do away with those who are inconvenienced is still there. But the spiritual darkness behind it is disguised. There's no disguising. You know, the chapter after, that was the chapter before in Leviticus, the chapter after, you know what it's telling men not to do? Not to sell their daughters into prostitution. Why is God commanding that? It's how you worship your gods. Sell them to the temple. You and I have no concept of what God is truly dealing with in the ancient world. But a God who loves like no other God has ever loved is at work in the Old Testament. And so when we sing choir songs that say of our God, your love is higher, your love is wider, your love is deeper, your love is truer, we're not just comparing the love of God to what we find in human beings. We're comparing the love of God revealed in the law of God and in his people that is foreign to the entire world of darkness around us. It was not until Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 3rd and 4th centuries that Christian values began to have any impact at all on governing. Before that, the values of our loving God were here in Leviticus. And if not for this, they would not be present on the earth. God is creating Israel to be a light in darkness. And he's saying, you will have no fellowship with these people because if you do, you will begin to serve their gods. And Israel decides we're going to have fellowship with these people. They're just going to pay taxes. You know what happens when you put a city under tribute and you envelop them in your kingdom and you pay taxes? 
You let them keep worshiping their gods. And they raise generations of people who keep worshiping their gods. Maybe you look at those gods and you say, we would never worship them. But then you have kids. And they have kids. And they grow up playing side by side with people who worship different gods. They fall in love with the people who worship different gods. And they say, this isn't so bad. They start to marry them. They start to have kids. And, and suddenly enough, the worship of those gods starts to spread. And it works that way over and over again for hundreds of years until we have Israelites offering their babies to Moloch while God is screaming about it the whole time. Here's Joshua in Joshua 23. This is what I meant to turn to earlier. Turn to Joshua 23. We'll read from 24 in a second. Joshua 23, 11. Now this is Joshua. He knows the work is not undone, that there are still people to be dealt with in the, in the land that God has promised them, but he's getting ready to die. He's done everything that God has called him to do. And here's him giving them a final charge here and talking with the people of Israel. Now he's led them for a long time. Joshua was there at the beginning of the Exodus, all through the 40 years, and now all through the conquest. Here's Joshua, verse 11 of Joshua 23. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Can I just say that to you this morning, please, as a point of application? You hard-hearted, cold, stubborn, detached, spiritually absent people, because we all are at times, and maybe that's you right now. Maybe you've got a heart of stone with no sensitivity to these things. Don't even want to hear it. Certainly don't want to live it. Joshua knew that heart. Take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God or else if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. At some point in the history of Israel, probably at many points, there was a faithful mother and father who raised children, and they married other Israelites, but were not as faithful and devoted. And they raised children who married pagans who had children who were offered to Moloch. And at some point in time, there are very faithful grandparents watching grandchildren be offered to pagan deities in fire. Turn to Joshua 24. Verse 14, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods of your fathers, which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. <laughs> Put away the gods that plagued you through the wilderness. Put away the gods they brought with them from Egypt. Put away these gods, serve the Lord. 
And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose sides. You want the old gods from the place we came from? You want the new gods from the place we're in now? You choose for yourself. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. God who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, Joshua, for he is our God. And Joshua just gives him the thumbs up and says, that's great. No. Look at verse 9. For he is a holy God. He said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. The context there is, if you are serving other gods. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. After he has done you good. The people are earnest in their presentation, but Joshua remembers what it's like to nearly be stoned by the same people, by their parents. You can't do this. Verse 21, and a very defeatist of Joshua, by the way, but true. Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord God, we will serve. Let's end with one more passage. Judges chapter 2. 850 chapters does get long, but we'll, just, and we'll end with this passage, okay? Judges chapter 2. After making tribute with all the people. We'll read a sampling of a few verses to save time. How about 11 through 14 to start? Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Okay. I wish that we could appreciate what that means because it's not just they went to the Baal church on Sunday. No. They embraced all of the evil of these pagan gods. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. The people who they were content to take tribute from were now their rulers. The tables had turned. Verse 16. This is going to summarize the period of the judges which is a 400 year period between the conquest and the kings. This is summary now. Not teaching at all. Verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord doesn't walk away from the people. 
as they go under subjugation to the people around them in God's judgment, verse 16 says, Thus the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 18, look at verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. Like Egypt all over again. And he delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. That was the template. They would serve other gods. They would do great evil. They would do unimaginable things. God would let their enemies have victory over them. Eventually they'd realize their pitifulness and they'd cry out to God for help. He would raise up a judge. He would be with that judge who would give them military victory and freedom from their enemies. They would serve under the rule of that judge who would keep them on the straight and narrow for his days and then he would die and the people would forget and they would do it all over again for 400 years. Gideon, Samson, Othniel. This was the pattern over and over again in Israel. And it, verse 19, the last verse we'll read. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. For 400 years this happens. Over and over and over again. So what's the summary from today? Well, we'll really nail it home next week. Okay, it's really a, these, this is really combined with the period of the kings. But God is faithful and he is showing us in his word over and over again that if he shows us what real love is, if he gives us a real law and gives us something true and righteous to hold to, if he gives us something that's really a light in darkness to hold to, people can't do it. They won't do it. They will reject that and choose what's evil. If not for his faithfulness. And in the Old Testament, that faithfulness is a resounding period over and over again of God going and showing the people how wrong they are and bringing them back. God going and showing the people that they're wrong and bringing them back. That is national Israel for 400 years. And then something incredible happens. They say to Samuel, the last judge, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. And that's where we'll start off next week. What happens when the people realize we can't keep doing this? What happens? Uh, let's close this morning with a word of prayer. Father, it's tough to see personal application in things like this. It's not like I can spell out, here's application point one and here's application point two and be effective covering history like this. But your spirit is capable and your word is true. It could be today that there are Christian men and women who are in their own little rebellion against you. Who are hard-hearted and stubborn and who are reverting back to their old character. The old God of self that they served. Father, I ask that you'll bring them to your senses before you bring them to their knees. Help them to see that there is no love like yours. There is no privilege like being your son or your daughter.
Soften their hearts. And if they won't be softened, then break them. Put them under your discipline until they cry out like the people of Israel for salvation once again. Till they cry out for your intervention. Till they crawl to you repentantly. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But if the choices are that or apostasy, Lord, let it be that. Let it be that rather than hell. Show us our sin. Show us our need for salvation. Show us the provision of it in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.